I'm Emily. And I'm Hannah. We are best friends and dietitians. We have a goal of challenging nutrition misinformation and fitness trends with an evidence-based approach. Each episode, we will dish up our thoughts about the latest facts on a popular health-related topic. We're the Upbeat Dietitians. All right. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Upbeat Dietitians podcast. Hello, everyone. Today, we're joined with another very fun guest and a good friend of mine, Emily Michael. And this kind of episode is going to be a bit different from our previous ones because it's all about actually animal nutrition. So we're taking a step away from human nutrition and going to really learn about the animal size. If you have any pets, if you like animals or nature, this is for you, I guess. Well, I guess not really nature. Now that I, I was say like, that. where does the nature <laughs> come Don't feed, don't feed <laughs> the wild animals. <laughs> um, but if you like animals and want to learn more, this is for you. So I'm going to kind of turn the floor over to Emily so she can introduce herself, kind of provide background about what you do for work your educational background. Um, I didn't mention she is studying to become a vet, which is very exciting. And you can also go over kind of what you do day in the life as a vet student right now. And if you want to touch on any types of hobbies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I, like you mentioned, I'm a fourth year veterinary student. Um, I'm at the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine, and I'll be graduating next May. Um, so with that, it's at the moment, it's a lot of school. <laughs> um, and for the last couple of years, it has been a combination of working in small animal private practice and attending school. And at the moment, I'm on my clinical year, which um, I imagine it's probably somewhat similar to your like clinical rotations that you guys did just in a different genre. Um, but essentially, we have a fully operational veterinary hospital at our school. And the students will we go through each various departments within our hospital and spend two weeks on each um, for a full year, 26 rotations. And on each rotation, we, we kind of get to act as baby veterinarians. Um, we don't have our licenses yet and we don't have our diplomas yet until May, but we do get to work with licensed um, specialists, residents, faculty at our school to diagnose the patients that come through. Um, and yeah, as far as, full-time or long-term goals. Uh, I'm intending to work in small animal private practice. So at the moment I get, it's a very holistic education. We work with lots of animals, large and small, all the exotics, everything in between. Um, And we work in very specialty settings as well, because typically the type of animals that come to our hospital are ones that their primary care veterinarian was stumped. So they sent it to us for further workup. once I finish, though, I'm intending to work probably a bit more of a, a bit more calm uh, place, a bit more regular, standard general practice. And I'm intending at least to stay with dogs and cats for now. I've had a bit too many cows in my life. <laughs> I've met my <laughs> Yeah, so school absolutely takes up a lot of my time. And until this year, I was working at the same time as well. So not too much free time. Um, when I do have free time, I have two cats that also take up the rest of my time. <laughs> and uh, I also really love hiking. I love going rock climbing. Um, and I play the ukulele. And those are kind of the three things that keep me sane when it's really, really busy and I don't get enough sleep. <laughs> Classic grad school things. Yeah, there's, there's a lot. <laughs> cool. Awesome. So you mentioned kind of that you're in your clinical year, but can you talk to us kind of what the educational background experience, stuff like that looks like in terms of actually becoming a vet in case anyone listening would like to have a changing career path in case they are pre-veterinary medicine or even if they're in high school and they're debating becoming a vet, what does that look like from, I guess, out of high school or that type of area where you need to go for new education somewhere. Absolutely. It's definitely a very rigorous process. Um, I think it's a very rewarding process, but it's very long. 
So essentially, to get to to get your veterinary degree, you need to go to a veterinary school. And to get into that school, you have to, um, for most of them, you have to have your bachelor's. There are a few exceptions. And even for those in the United States, you still need to go to some undergraduate school. You can't just go directly from high school because it is a professional program that gives you a doctorate. So you need to have something under your belt. But the typical student, they'll go to for four years to um, just a, you know, standard undergraduate college. They say you can get like any degree you want and go into veterinary school. The reality of it is you need a lot of requirements, uh, required classes and types of classes. So you could do anything you wanted, but if you had like a Spanish major, it'd be a lot harder to also meet all of those prerequisites versus if you, you know, if you major in animal science like I did, or even like biology, something like that, you're automatically those classes are sort of included in your curriculum at most schools. So you don't have to worry about fitting them in on the side. And then also you just have a better basis for the the learning that you'll be doing in veterinary school. That school itself is four years, like I mentioned, since I'm finishing up with my fourth year right now. After that, though, there is the opportunity to do more because some people never want to stop going to school. Um, So at the end of the four years, which is eight years post high school for most people, you essentially have your doctorate. We have our we have like a special degree, just like how medical doctors, like human medical doctors and like lawyers have their own thing. We have a doctorate of veterinary medicine and that basically qualifies you to work on any animal, but there's some stipulations because just like in human medicine, we have, um, you can get sued for negligence and malpractice. So it's, you're qualified to work on those animals, but if you're in over your head, you're going to get sued for malpractice. Um, so in reality, when I graduate, technically I could work on your wombat, but I don't know anything about wombat and I probably wouldn't do a very good job. Um, so veterinary medicine has some I don't want to say it's lacking regulation, but there's a lot of gray area there. Anyways, but that aside, some people want to work on wombats or they want to do very, very complicated neurosurgery or like um, cardiology, like echocardiograms, that sort of thing. The sort of information that you don't have time to learn in your four years of vet school. And they go on to what's called a residency, pretty similar to in human med. Basically, the way our hierarchy goes is there's normal vet school. You can get off the train there if you want. Um, But if you want to continue, you do one to two years of an internship, which then qualifies you to apply to a three-year residency program in whatever specialty you'd like. And there are very few of them for most specialties. So a lot of people do those internships and then not even get the residency they wanted and have to either wait a year or change their plans or whatnot. Um, So it's all... It can get quite complicated and can get very long, too, because if you want to become a uh, cardiology specialist or a dentistry specialist, that sort of thing, it's 13 years of schooling post high school, um, assuming everything lines up perfectly and there are no, like, gaps in between years. (laughs) That's wild. Yeah. (laughs) That's so insane to me. I cannot imagine, like if we were still in school, like not even being close to being done yet. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of it is further compounded. Like I sort of mentioned, they're just veterinary medicine is definitely a, it's, it's a field. I don't know if I want to even call it a large field, but it's, it's growing. So because of that, there are only actually 33 veterinary schools in the entire United States. And there's a couple as far there's, there's a distinction between, um, it's called AVMA schools, American Veterinary Medical Association certified schools. And some of them aren't actually in the U.S. And you can study at these other schools that are AVMA certified and then still be eligible to practice in the U.S. But basically, if you want to be a veterinarian in the U.S., you can either go to one of 33 schools stateside or there's like, doing some quick math, 21 other schools in various like European countries and whatever that you can go to. So, yeah, it's. A lot of work compounded by the fact that there are very few places to do that schooling and do that work, which results in very competitive acceptance rates, very competitive, like, cutthroat residency programs and the whole shebang. Exciting. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's the right word. 
I really love what you're doing. That's true. Just to get through. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> cool. So kind of going into more so what this episode is about is since we are not talking about human nutrition, we're going to talk about animal nutrition. We would like to hear from you. What exactly does nutrition even look like in veterinary medicine? Yeah. So nutrition is definitely one of the, in my opinion, like more emergent subsections of veterinary medicine um, because there's, there's definitely been a shift in society just in general in the last decade or two about how we consider our animals because it really went from animals as laborers or animals as pests to now like pests with an S in there um, to now <laughs> animals as pets with no S um, and animals are being treated as our family members. So that has definitely been reflected on in the state of animal nutrition as well. It's definitely gone from a point where a lot of our grandparents, they fed their animals just whatever food scraps they had. They had cats that didn't come in the house and just fed in for themselves outside, but somehow they were considered their cat, that sort of thing. Um, versus now today, if you go to a pet food or a pet store, like 90% of the pet store is just food because there's so many brands out there. There's so many treats, there's so many supplements, there's so many just, it's, it's a major market at this point, which can be really tricky because we as people really like to anthropomorphize everything. And we really like to like reflect our own emotions on everything and treat it like it's also a person. And that's really reflective as well in pet nutrition because a lot of people will look at pet food and they'll be like, this is just brown circles of kibble. And that's not appealing and that's boring and my pet deserves better than that. And they'll try to, you know, they, they want their pet's food to look as exciting and as fun and as tasty as their human food does. And a lot of marketing uh, like companies have really picked up on that as well, because we're starting to see a lot of these <laughs> a lot of these major pet food brands are more marketing now is like this is a home cooked like you can see the individual pieces of chicken and you can see the individual vegetables and all of that and there's definitely this big push of we don't want it to look gross we don't want it to look boring we want it to look like something you might eat and that in itself can be a little bit dangerous if it means the quality of the food is decreasing as a result of it so when it comes down so the first thing just in general I like to talk about with pet nutrition and how it's different than human nutrition is with pet nutrition, we very much focus on um, getting the calories that they need, getting the nutrients that they need, and just ensuring that everything they get is part of a properly balanced diet uh, that will that is consistent with a healthy life, like non-disease, all of that stuff. Versus with humans, I feel like it's a lot more of you want to eat healthy, but also it's an experience. It's like a connection over a table. You talk about the atmosphere of a restaurant when you go there. It's how does it look? How does it taste? How does it look when you put it on Instagram? And like a lot of other things that dogs don't really care about. Um, so yeah. We, yeah. <laughs> I'm imagining like a dog running like an Instagram account, like check out my kibble today. <laughs> but it's true. Sometimes people will, they care more about what their food looks like than how it tastes. Me. But that is not <laughs> not how dogs yeah. do <laughs> their food. Yep. <laughs> so there was a study. This was actually in birds. Um, I think it was in cockatoos. But there was a study like, I don't know, five, ten years ago or something that um, they were looking at how birds were eating different brands of food and how it would affect their um their nutritional health if they had a food that every single pellet in there was the same shape size color everything versus if they had a more natural quote-unquote food where it was literally like here's a sunflower seed here is like an orange pellet that has some nutritional component to it like various things though that you could actually distinguish the shapes and the sizes of them and what they found was that like the birds who ate just every single piece of bird food looks exactly the same and it kind of looks like boring green bird food. They ate that food and they 
ate it just fine and they were very nutritionally healthy because it was a very nutritionally balanced meal versus the birds who had food that if it was eaten entirely, like if it was eaten in its entirety, it still had the proper nutritional balance, but each piece looked different. There were like orange pieces and blue pieces and some of them were circles and things like that. The birds would preferentially choose whichever pieces they thought probably looked better to the best of our knowledge obviously we can't ask them and they would end up with nutritional deficiencies because one bird would like only eat the green ones and one bird would only eat the individual seeds but not the pellets and things like that so it's a difficult it's a difficult topic because you don't want to tell people that we're going to give your dog boring food and take away their option their choice but at the same time if you give them choice they might not have the mental capabilities we do to make the right choice. Because <laughs> if you give a dog a hamburger and also like a perfectly balanced Hills Science Diet diet, they're going to eat the hamburger every single time. And they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but their vet will care. <laughs> That's uh, so interesting. That's so interesting. I, I... As a dog owner, I'm always seeing all kinds of different things on like Facebook, for example, which I know not a good source, <laughs> but a lot of dog parents on there will do for like Catahoula specifically, the dog that I have. Um, I'm sure it's a thing for other breeds too, but they do often like a raw food diet where they do like the eggs and like, I don't really know what else. Like they do like pumpkin, usually some kind of like meats or like sometimes like liver and things like that. So is that kind of like what you're saying? Like those diets can sometimes not be optimal just because the dogs may only choose to eat like certain parts of that? Or is that like a totally different thing? Yeah, I think that is, that could be applicable to that case. Um, certainly I, it sounds so harsh and it sounds so awful, but the more choices you offer your animal, the more opportunities you're giving them to choose the wrong choice, <laughs> um, which sounds terrible. We hate to think that way about them, but it's, it's kind of tough love. Um, you're definitely opening up to the possibility that they will not get the nutrition you think you're giving them because they might only selectively eat the parts that taste the best, which are frequently the parts that are highest in fat and like other not, I mean, necessary things, but not at that high of a quantity. Um, I know that we're going to talk about raw foods, I think in the next follow-up episode. So we can talk more because there's, there's a whole lot of controversy about raw foods for a number of reasons. Yeah. And, and we can get into that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I actually forgot we're doing that. That'd be a really good time. Cause I have a yeah. million questions about that one. So that'll be good. Yeah, absolutely. With all the talk about their like nutritionally balanced diets though. Um, I was doing some research prior to the podcast just because nutrition is, like I said, it's, it's a growing thing in veterinary medicine. As terrible as it sounds, people just genuinely, they did not think about it for a very long time. You had a dog and you just give it whatever you have and ta-da. <laughs> but recently in the last decade or so, people care a lot more about what is in their dog's food and rightfully so. Um, so I'm not entirely sure when this organization was founded, but there is an organization called the Association of American Feed Control Officials. And that is basically the closest thing in the veterinary community we have to like a governing regulatory body over pet food. Um, because to my knowledge, there is no actual like single organization that actually can impose rules on what goes in pet food. Um, certainly if it's harmful to animals, there are, you know, veterinary boards that can impose legal like issues. They can sue these companies, things like that. But there isn't like any sort of organization that sees every pet food that ever gets made and says, this is an okay pet food or it's not. However, this, this organization, it's the AAFCO, they do release guidelines every year that say, if you were to follow these guidelines, given the current nutritional research, um, then your, your food would be properly balanced for a dog or for a cat. I think they might also do horses. Um, so it's more of a like optional, like it's, it's an opt-in for every pet food brand. If they want to, they can contact the organization and say, Hey, we think that we meet your guidelines. Would you like to audit our food? And if it passes, they can then put on their bag, like we are AFCO certified. But other than that, um, there really isn't any rules. If they don't want to do that, it doesn't mean that they aren't balanced. They just 
haven't gone through this extra step to show that they are. And you really just have no idea at that point. There also just isn't a lot of rules as far as, you know, if, if I want to say that my food is premium, what does that mean? No one knows, but it looks good. So people will spend more money on it. Technically, gourmet also doesn't mean anything, and neither does holistic. They're all just terms that sound really appealing, and they really appeal to that emotional thing that pet owners feel. And it's not wrong to feel that way, but they want their their pets to have the best possible food. So you're like, oh, well, this is holistic. That must mean natural or something, and therefore, <laughs> and it might not mean anything at all. So it's really a... It's, it's kind of a wild world out there because there are so many pet foods. None of it's regulated. And well, some of it's regulated. <laughs> a lot of it isn't. And it doesn't mean it's bad, but it also means that there isn't an easy way for a consumer to look at something and say, is this actually good for my animal? Um, will it meet their nutritional need, uh, needs? So then would you recommend that consumers consult their vet for recommendations or... How would you say that the best way to get the most accurate advice or beneficial advice for them to be is because a lot of things you talked about are very common also in nutrition we deal with all the time. (laughs) So um, what advice do you have for people who don't know what food to buy their animal? Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's sort of, there's a couple of, things you can do depending on how involved you want to be. You certainly can do research on your own pet's food and make a decision that way as a baseline. I would say don't just buy a bag because it looks pretty. At the very least, you know, do a quick search, do some Google reviews. If you can find a paper on it, that is obviously a very, very good sign. But to be honest, that's hard to do with a lot of pet food brands that are out there just because a lot of them don't necessarily have published research about them. Um, that'd be the baseline. That's really tricky because there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of Facebook posts out there. There's a lot of um, PR marketing stuff out there and it can be difficult to wade through. So the next best option, and honestly my preferred option, I'm biased though, is yeah, talk to your veterinarian, um, which comes with a caveat because your standard veterinarian, um, which is what I will be, just a general practice veterinarian. We have training in nutrition. We take classes in nutrition, animal nutrition. And also we just, it's something that we interact with pretty much every single day with our patients. Um, But there are veterinarians who specialize in nutrition who are more knowledgeable than us. So at the very least, your general practitioner veterinarian, they're going to, they, they should have some idea, hopefully more than just some idea of these are the foods that I am aware of that are safe, that seem to be nutritionally balanced. If your vet goes above and beyond, hopefully they've done some independent research as well. I'll let you know, not all of them do, which is really unfortunate. People get jaded and that's very unfortunate. Um, But at the very least, they can tell you like, this is a food that I have seen my patients do well on. Patients like your animal do well on. This is one that tends they tend to not do well on and I've seen issues with this in my patients that sort of thing but then if you really want to get a gold star you know best in show um just like how we we have an equivalent to registered dietitians and what ours is called is a veterinary nutritionist which I know is awkward because I know you spoke (laughs) in the previous podcast about how nutritionists in human like food are not certified in any way (laughs) But for us, they are. Um, to my I, and to my knowledge, I don't think we even have a category for like veterinary dietitian. I think it's just they chose a word and they chose nutritionist because I've never heard of a veterinary dietitian. That'd be awesome. Yep, they just they just chose and they chose the other one. Um, but yeah, veterinary nutritionists are the people who, um, as I mentioned, they go through and they do a residency, which. As a reminder, it means it's like 13-ish years. Technically, when I was looking it up, um, the the website for the American College of Veterinary Nutrition, their website's under construction right now. So some of the links were broken. But from what I could tell from what was functioning on their website, 
they actually might only have a two-year residency. So you're looking at, you know, I mean, that's nice. If everyone wants to become a nutritionist, you might save a year compared to the other specialists. <laughs> but these are people, though, who in addition to their vet school, they do a year or two of intensive, like, nutrition-specific internships. And then they do two years of a nutrition-specific residency under a board-certified nutritionist, veterinary nutritionist. Um, they also have to take a two-day written exam to at the end of it all to prove that they've retained this information. Two um, days? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jeez I'm not Louise. 100% sure how many hours of each day, but it's two days. I think and, two is already like scary enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and these are the people who are like absolute experts in the field of veterinary nutrition. They've their requirements to become veterinary nutritionists include writing papers and performing studies on various diets, things like that. And these people typically, they will be working either for major pet food brands, um, they'll be working independently in like private practice and working with patients who have unique nutritional needs. But also, it's possible to go and just have a nutritional consult as well, just even if your pet isn't having like a unique nutritional need. I say possible because there's very few of them. There are only 79 board certified veterinary nutritionists in the United States. Because again, it's a very growing field and we're getting there. Um, but even so, my understanding is a lot of them are open to doing nutritional consults, even if it's just, I want to make sure my dog is getting the best food. It's just that you might have to book out a few weeks in advance if their schedule is busy because they can be in very high demand. As you can imagine, there's so few of them. Um, but especially if you have, you know, if your pet is like, they have diabetes and they have cancer and hyperthyroidism, you know, when it's multiple, very intense, um, nutritionally impactful diseases happening at once, your normal general practice vet isn't going to be able to handle that as far as just food recommendations. Cause at that point it is literally, we need to figure out exactly how much of each like macronutrient they need, exactly how many calories per day, exactly how much water, all of that. So they take the really crazy cases. <laughs> Cool. That is kind of sad about the nutritionist thing, but uh, we'll move okay. on, I guess. <laughs> it's a it's a different creature, yep. different beast. Is that what you meant? <laughs> Another beast. I would yeah. say so, like kind of similarly to your field, to my understanding. Um, that's like the official way to actually be a board certified nutritionist. When I did a quick Google search, though, just to see if I was missing anything else, see what would come up, there was an article that was like, do you want to be a veterinary nutritionist? Like, you should major in animal science and then call yourself a nutritionist. Like, <gasps> um, ah! There were definitely a lot of resources that were like, if you want to do this, just like, just start calling yourself it, essentially. And so... Little did we know there was an entire other area of people right. coming in. The so drama. I personally like encountered somebody who's like falsely posing as a nutritionist, but I I honestly have to imagine it happens. Um so if you know if your pet is genuinely in that area where you specifically want and need a fully like certified, knowledgeable veterinary nutritionist, like maybe ask to see their certification as well, just to make sure that they're not just some random person who got a degree in biology and likes dogs <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh uh why am i not surprised i feel like <laughs> every every career career field honestly oh yeah there's always someone being a poser <laughs> all right well let's get um into our next topic here so i think another really I guess, common question that listeners may have if they do have pets of their own is the foods that our pets cannot have in terms of like human foods. So would you do us the honor of kind of walking through certain foods that maybe humans um, should not give to their pets and kind of the reasons why as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like especially around like holidays, accidental toxicity food toxicity is just such a major problem that we see coming into the clinic all the time it's so much worse than you'd imagine <laughs> so just being aware so I feel like a lot of people hopefully are aware that like things like chocolate and coffee um, things they have a, a component called methyl xanthines 
but specifically it's something that's found in um like caffeine and hence coffee and also like i said chocolate specifically like the cacao in there those can be really really bad for dogs um so that's the biggest offender i think just in my i think i've done five to six years in private practice and like i don't even know how many chocolate dog cases I saw because they get into a chocolate bar like right after Halloween or something like that and this is not great (laughs) Um, and it doesn't help that most of the foods that are toxic to dogs and to cats taste really good so they taste it and then they just keep going Um, (laughs) the other really big ones that we see um, one would be xylitol which is it's an artificial sweetener and it's in gum. And I feel like this is another one that people are pretty aware of. Um, it's in sugar-free gum because it's what gives it the sweetness despite the lack of sugar. But also recently, companies have started putting it in peanut butter. I'm really not sure why, but it's becoming a lot more common in peanut butter, which is one of like the biggest, most common treats we give to dogs, even like at the vet. <laughs> um, so that's one that I like to really mention when owners ask about possible things they should be looking out for because like they're taking our favorite dog bribery toy and making it toxic to them it's not in all of them but in some of them (laughs) i guess i didn't actually go into why these things are bad but so the methylxanthines they can cause just it's a lot of gi symptoms but then if they get enough of it it can absolutely cause some uh cns depression um, and seizures which can be fatal And then the xylitol, it also can cause seizures, but that one's actually because since it's a, um, uh, like a sugar replacement, the body is like, look at how much sugar I have. Cause it's, it's, you know, sensing the glucose levels in that artificial sweetener. So it stops producing glucose. But then as soon as that xylitol passes through the body, now you should have no glucose. That's just not compatible (laughs) with life. Um, So it starts using as well. Another big one, I wrote a couple down here, but I just really want to hit the big ones, honestly. There's two things that can be pretty bad for cats, and that would be um, grapes or raisins, um, and also alliums, which is like garlic and onions. Um, And I say those just because I feel like those are another thing that most people have in their house. Um, Grapes and raisins can cause kidney failure, and in dogs as well. So like, I've definitely met owners who are like, yeah, I just like, my dog loves grapes and I like give them to him as treats. And it's like, please stop that. Like, no, no, no. (laughs) We don't actually know why, but over time it causes kidney failure. And sometimes it happens quickly and sometimes they're fine and their owners give them to them as treats. And we don't understand why that works. Um, And then the alliums, the garlic and the onions, those can just cause blood issues in cats. Um, And again, those can, those can be pretty fatal to your cats as well. So whenever I'm like, prepping food I feel like I go through like an entire onion every single day and my cats always want to eat them so it's always a dangerous time in my kitchen (laughs) mine does too Finn will always like try to like really get his nose up when I'm doing onions I'm like no dude back up (laughs) (laughs) um and then the other like just really big one I don't know if this counts as food but drugs (laughs) um because (laughs) we're going there yeah So alcohol can definitely be, like, alcohol is toxic to humans, um, but we can tolerate it in certain doses. And it is also, in the same way, toxic to dogs and to cats, but they're way smaller than us, and their metabolism is very different than ours. Um, So, you know, I feel like that one is a bit less common that dogs and cats are getting into alcohol, but that is there. But then, with the current rise of, well, the the legalization of marijuana. Um, We have seen so many dogs and cats stoned out of their minds on edibles in the last like two years at this point. Um, And that can be a major one as well. Frankly, they usually get through it okay, but like there are some that don't. And it's very similar to just if if a human were to overdose on marijuana or on like just overdose with alcohol. Um, because they're way smaller than us. And if they eat a dose for a human, then that is considerably more than they need. <laughs> this is a very morbid topic, but just some big... <laughs> it's heavy- good to know. Yeah. And the main I, thing I feel I like so many people ask and like talk about like what they shouldn't feed their animals. And so many people also like feeding their animals. 
human food. I was actually going to say, I was like, I know someone that fed their dog alcohol, but it wasn't a real person. It was a third Harry Potter movie. (laughs) The like Aunt Petunia feeds the little dog her wine. She's a villain though. So like, isn't she? (laughs) She is. She's not a good person. But I was like, I have a distinct memory of someone feeding a dog alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I will say the other big thing, though, honestly, so there are, there are like, I don't even know, there's massive lists of what you can and can't and should and shouldn't give to animals. Um, those are like the biggest ones that I feel like come up in everyday life. But A, Google is usually your friend on this. Like, there's some false information out there. But usually if you were to search, like, can I feed my dog a carrot? I don't know. You'd probably find like 99% of the articles would agree with each other and you could probably trust that answer that, yeah, it's fine. Um, Additionally, there's a website called ASPCA.org and it's like- We can link that. Yeah, I was gonna say, it's the Animal Something Poison Control of America, I think. (laughs) But they're essentially, even though I don't know what they're called, they're the number one resource um, in the US for- any animal that has like ingested something it maybe shouldn't so they have countless articles about like what can you and shouldn't you feed your dog and also they have a hotline of if you're like oh my god my dog just ate uh, a hershey kiss and will that do anything or is it too small of a dose to matter you can call them and they will they'll talk you through it cool that's pretty cool I will say I Google something like that probably like once a week. Like last week I Googled, can my dog have watermelon? Because I had no idea, but I knew he wanted some. So I looked it up. (laughs) Awesome. So kind of to end this episode with one of our spicier topics in animal nutrition. And as we always love controversies and on here about human one, we want to hear one of the big animal nutrition ones, which is you've labeled it. I don't, I don't want to say this in a way that people won't understand because I don't have a pet. So I don't really know what the average Joe might call these foods. <laughs> so I guess Hannah, if you want to lay this one out. Cause... Well, truthfully, I, I know some about this kind of stuff. So I'm actually really curious to learn all about it, but this the, the the question we're kind of asking Emily is to kind of describe the difference between like boutique diets, if you will, and like the big, I'm guessing like name brand, like pet foods. Is that what we're talking about? Okay. Okay. So yeah, Emily, I'll let you kind okay. of better describe that. Like what's the, what's the differences between those and why it's such a hot topic? Yeah, no, absolutely. And so yeah, the, the words I put down on this note document, boutique versus big pet food is that's at least how we refer to it in like the veterinary community. Um, but definitely people I've heard the word like the big three as the big pet food brands, Hills, Royal Canin and Purina. And then boutique diets, honestly, kind of means like everything else. It depends on who you're asking, but it's really asking about like the major really large scale corporations that make pet food versus sort of the more like small scale, like they're kind of homier and they are um, less, it's like less corporate. They're still a business. They're still making pet food and selling it to you, but they're more of like, it's kind of like if you go to Macy's for your clothing versus going to like an independent boutique, like, like, I don't know, Francesca's or something. Um, and you're like, here's one is like, just is just corporate and I'm paying some big C- CEO versus here is more like, it's a single independent store. It's not part of a chain, that sort of thing. Yeah, so there's a lot of concern and there's a lot of information. There's all misinformation out there regarding, you know, what should you feed your pet? And is it okay to feed from one of these big corporate foods or should you feed from the smaller ones? Um, and to be perfectly honest, when I, like a few years ago, I think I was a bit more like black and white on my answer, but nowadays it's a bit more gray than I think it was when I was, when I was younger, <laughs> so old. Because <laughs> um, it's, it's a question of uh, food safety, like nutritional balance, but it's also kind of a question of ethics because for some people, they don't want to buy large scale like corporate pet foods because they don't want to support 
those companies and they want to support small companies. Um, so from an ethical standpoint, just because I find this is like really interesting and really creepy. Um, like I mentioned, there are these big three pet foods and they just, they just are, they're the largest brands. They make the most food because they sell the most food and they're just the brands in America that you've probably heard of if you have a dog, but maybe not if you like found one, you stuck with it and you never looked at anything else. Um, and it's Hills, Royal Canaan and Purina. And Purina is, I don't know which one honestly sells the most, but Purina is the one that is most controversial from an ethics standpoint, because Purina is actually owned by Nestle. And I'm not sure how familiar you are, but there's been a lot of um, controversy over Nestle as a company recently because of their working conditions, their laborers, um, a lot of issues and accusations that are probably true of unfair wages, unfair labor, and um, some pretty terrifying things. So Nestle owns Purina. They also own some other brands you might have heard of. They own Fancy Feast. They own Friskies, Beneful, Alpo. There's one called Chef Michael's that I don't know very well, but it has my last name. I thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> but they own probably, they're the company that owns the most pet foods out of all of them because they own like there's more than just that. Those are just the only ones I recognized. And they own all of those pet foods that are tap they're like presented as competitors in the store. It's like, oh, you could buy friskies or fancy feast, but like all the money's ultimately going to Nestle. Um that's so tricky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and especially like there are a lot of people who are boycotting Nestle at this point. So like if you're boycotting Purina because you're boycotting Nestle, I understand that. Like I personally use Purina because I think it's a good diet but like I have a friend who was just like I would never support Nestle and you know like if that's your ethical standpoint I think that's a very valid standpoint to have um Royal Canaan is owned by Mars because weirdly enough all of the pet food like the pet food market is very dominated by candy companies apparently I was about to say that's I'm hilarious. like what is going on <laughs> yeah I it's it's really weird when you start following all the chains, but it's like like the Disney owns everything in media. Like it's one of those. Like, things what is up with the candy companies? So, like, <laughs> it's funny because like dogs know? can't have chocolate, so it's like yeah, I know, right? <laughs> this is all like messed up. <laughs> so, yeah, so Mars owns Royal Canaan, and I'm not aware of anybody who's boycotting Mars for like ethical reasons. But again, like um, some people just don't want to support a large scale corporation, and Mars absolutely is. Mars also owns. Uh, I think it's like 4,000 veterinary clinics across the United States because I'm not sure how familiar you are with veterinary clinics, like corporations, but um, there's a corporation called Banfield. They're like, it's a chain of veterinary clinics and they're in every PetSmart. There's um, Blue Pearl, which is a chain of emergency clinics. And there's VCA, which is a chain of just like general practice clinics. And Mars owns all of those. Um, so they own literally thousands. It was like, it might have been 3,700 clinics. Um, so again, like some people were like, they look at that and they're like, that's, I don't like that. I don't want to support this monopolization. Um, so do without you will. And then Hills is owned by Colgate, like the toothpaste company. <laughs> Just of course. Like there's like five major companies in this world and they're like just owning everything it's just crazy to me disney's it's, gonna own all these soon just uh -huh. wait disney's gonna be <laughs> or like netflix or our something candy. <laughs> yeah our candy and our animal food yeah so like so knowing that like then when we talk about like i said i call them boutique diets those are the ones that aren't owned by major corporations it's usually like there's one um the really common ones are i think rachel ray is one i think about uh froms uh a lot of them i don't know only because there's wait, like wait can we pause yeah you just say like rachel ray like the food network I rachel know, ray she has a dog food does she have cat yeah. food too uh not i've only known it for dog food but it wouldn't surprise me is it the same as the food network i didn't know there was a food network rachel ray i watched her at food yeah, network it's, it's as her, a child well there you go it's her Course, she was she doing like has, human cooking demonstrations. Okay, okay. She like I guess has my, a dog, my... and it's like oh, marketed as like her food. like, yeah. Well, there you go. So she's a bit more famous than I knew. I honestly didn't know that. <laughs> like basically, there's just hundreds of small like little tiny corporations that they probably only have like 
Whereas Purina has 50 to 60 different foods it makes, maybe even more. It might be 50 to 60 like dog foods and then the same for cats because they just have so many different diets um, just within the Purina line. And then you get to Fancy Feast and there's like 30 different flavors, that sort of thing. Places like Rachel Ray will have more of like a much more small scale. They only have a few options because they're smaller. They don't have the infrastructure to make all of that. Um, there's like a Canna signature. I wrote a few of these down. And again, I don't know them personally other than Rachel Ray's one I know most just because they're all just very small. And also they don't have as much um, research behind them, which is something I'll get into. Um, so yeah, from an ethical standpoint, some people just refuse to, they refuse to like give their money towards large corporations. And they say, I want to give it towards Zignature because it was made by two guys in their basement one day who had this idea. I don't know if that's true, but like, it's sort of that idea though, of like, this is going to the workers and to the people versus paying money to Hills is going to the CEO and the workers are underpaid. I couldn't say for sure if that's true, but that's the mindset. But like I said, it's really complicated because I think that having, making an ethical decision in your like pet food sourcing makes sense. At the same time, you really have to advocate for the nutrition of the dog because you can be more ethical and give them a worse diet. And as a veterinarian, that isn't acceptable to me. Um, it sucks that sometimes we have to make decisions like that. And ideally, you can find an option that is ethical and also gives your dog the proper food. Um, so I'll say just bluntly, like if a person were to ask me, what should I feed my dog or my cat? and I only had like three seconds, I would tell them, feed them Hills Royal Canaan or Purina. Um, but if they have time, we can go a bit more in depth. Because at the end of the day, I understand why people are scared of big corporations and monopolies, but also because they're a big corporation, it means they have all of this money and they can put that money towards creating a quality product with um, quality control and research behind it. So there are a lot of these smaller name foods that they might be perfectly fine, but they might not be. And they haven't had the money, the resources or the time to do studies to prove that they're okay. So when I went on to a couple pet food sites, um, the biggest difference is that most of the big food sites were just very, they were like, hi, like this is Hills. Hills is actually the best website I found. They literally had a link to here's research articles about the clinical trials that we performed on our prescription foods prior to releasing from the market. Here are literally just nutrition lectures and courses that you can enroll in for free if you'd like to learn more about pet nutrition. And also here's a hotline to veterinarians who are available for food consults. There might be a fee associated with that. I didn't actually say, but like they were very transparent of like, here are resources that you can utilize that we have gathered for you. Um, additionally, Hill's Royal Canaan and yeah, and Purina, all three of them had statements on their website that stated um, Hills employs more than 220 veterinarians, qualified nutritionists and food scientists for its product development. Royal Canaan stated that they have a team of board certified veterinary nutritionists, which is like impressive because only 79 of them exist. Um, PhD nutritionists and associates with a master's degree in small animal nutrition. And then Purina says that each diet has been developed and tested by a team of Purina scientists, including nutritionists and veterinarians. Um, some of the small companies do have nutritionists, but ultimately the large scale companies, all of them have nutritionists, all of them have research going into these foods and to a greater degree than the small scale companies. So like at the, at first glance, Frankly, I'm more willing to just inherently trust them than I would any small diet. If you wanted me to trust a small diet, I would want to personally look into all of their ingredients. Their like, if they have a product guarantee, if they don't, that already is a big red flag for me. And to look at it before I let any pet go onto it, um, which is difficult because people don't have time for that. <laughs> um, so it really feels more like a shot in the dark and like I'm taking more of a risk, trusting that they do, that they've done proper quality control, that the food is what they say it is and that the food is properly balanced for my pet's nutrition. Um, additionally, Purina, at least all of their foods meet that the AFCO guidelines. They have all of their foods independently certified through that. 
Hills and Royal Canyon actually didn't have a statement either way. So I'm not 100% sure. Um, I will say, though, both of them have extensive literature. You can just look up their research papers and see, like, why did we formulate this diet this way? How did dogs respond to the dietary trials? Um, and, like, for healthy animals, but also some of their diets are specific for, like, this is for a dog with hypothyroidism or this is for a cat with kidney disease. And you can look at these trials and see how did the cats present, how did they do on the food, and, like, how did it help or not help their renal disease. Um, so, yeah. So, at the end of the day, there's so much research backing these companies that you see the smaller companies trying to attack them and saying like they're they look gross or they're impersonal or like and it's not even a personal attack per se it's usually more of like they focus on the small diets and they say oh this is made in small batches and i'm like that's not a positive that means it's not like each batch might be different because <laughs> you're doing it a million times and you're more likely to make a mistake in one of those batches they're not going to be as homogenous or they'll say like, oh, we use unique ingredients. And I'm like, you don't want a unique ingredient because your dog's digestive system can't handle unique ingredients because they're very sensitive and temperamental. Um, or they'll just talk about how like this is made with love. And I'm like, that's really sweet. But that doesn't <laughs> protein values like, I, you know. So, yeah, at the end of the day, I am I think I have a healthy dose of skepticism towards these small scale diets. Um, ultimately it's really the health of the patient that can determine what we do moving forward. So if you come in and you have a 13 year old dog, like a 13 year old lab, and he's been on Rachel Ray grain free all of his life and he's happy, I'm not going to tell you like, Hey, you need to change his diet right now. Cause he's fine. He's clinically fine. Like there doesn't seem to be any indication that it's not working for him. But if an owner comes in with like a, you know, three month old kitten and is like, hey, what would you like? Like, what should I feed? Or if they say like, hey, I found this random brand and it has kangaroo meat in it. I'm going to tell them probably don't do that because <laughs> those exist. And like, it's it's really a question of why would you take that risk if you have this like tried, tested and true option over here? Any question? I've been like just chatting no. here. <laughs> I think that was a really good debrief of like everything big corporation foods and then what to take into account i think you talked about good pros and cons of both yeah and yeah it's messy because again if somebody comes in and just tells me i'm not buying hills they're not buying hills so not every other food is bad it's just harder to weed through them <laughs> yes yeah, it reminds me a lot of like human supplements, like they probably don't have bad intentions or not trying to like cause any harm, kind of like the boutiques, but like you just can't be sure because they're not as easily to test, easy to test as like the big ones where they have more finances to like be third party approved and that kind of stuff. So that's kind of what it reminds me of in terms of human nutrition. And that is where Emily and I feel skeptical too, in terms of, again, human stuff is that same scenario where it's like, yeah, those are the bigger brands. We do like supporting small businesses and that sort of thing, but you can't quite be sure that what is in their products is going to be the safest for you. Yeah. And I feel also, I think partially why I just go very, very intense on this is also because your average animal will eat one food for probably its whole life. Maybe two, if it develops a disease that requires a new food. Um, some owners change it up, but like most animals will stay on the same one and that's okay. They do really well on it and it, we don't have any evidence to show that it like impacts them negatively to be on the same food. But because of that, it means it's so incredibly important that that one food is good because like I do not have the best eating habits, but like if I have McDonald's one day, I'm not having it every single day for, you know, 18 years. <laughs> um, and there's a big difference in humans like indulging and even your dog indulging if you give it a treat or if you go to like Starbucks and get the puppuccino or whatever. Um, but since their diet is so regulated and consistent, any sort of issue in that diet will absolutely accumulate over over time. That's a good point. I didn't think about it that way. That's very interesting. <laughs> cool. 
I think that's kind of a good way to wrap up this episode. Um, we hope that you guys learned something about animal nutrition. I'm, I learned a lot. There was, I learned so much. I don't really, I don't think I know anything about any of this. So, <laughs> except for vet school is long. I knew that beforehand. Um, but we hope you guys took something away from this. And you can let us know what questions you might have further that we could potentially bring Emily on again. We do have a follow-up episode planned with her where we talk about all things fad diets which is always a fun conversation. So be sure to tune back in for that. But I think this is a good time for our bonus question of the episode. And as always, we always let our guests go first and kind of put their argument on the floor. So this week's episode bonus question is, should you eat mac and cheese with a fork or a spoon? Okay. <laughs> so I feel very strongly about this. That's how I felt until I read the question. Because uh, so for me, I separate mac and cheese into two categories. There is like your normal, just like elbow macaroni. And then there is shaped mac and cheese, like your Elsa mac and cheese that I have in my pantry right now. <laughs> and I think both of them need to be eaten with a fork for two different reasons, like they're for separate reasons. Because if you have um, the elbow, I like to put the tines of my fork through the elbow macaroni. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> How many I can get on the fork at one time. <laughs> I've done 12 before. <laughs> oh my God. That's really impressive, actually. Um. So that's just a given. Um, and with shaped macaroni, I apparently am just a very sensory person because I like to like spear it through the holes in the shapes. And additionally, I feel like if you have a spoon, you just pick up too much macaroni at a time and then you just eat too quickly. I like to enjoy and savor my macaroni. <laughs> kind of like how you use chopsticks to intentionally slow down your eating. That was a good answer. I like, yeah, <laughs> I can get on with that. That was, that was good. Okay. Emily, Emily Krause. I would love to hear your answer on this. So I am also team fork because I agree that you get way too much in a spoonful. It's like, I also, I like am the, one of the slowest eaters I know. So I don't like eating big bites of things. Um, also, I like stabbing <laughs> the noodles, too. Yeah. <laughs> but then, like, if you have extra cheese, you can, like, use that fork and noodle to, like, get the extra cheese onto your noodles. Whereas if you had a spoon, you're just going to be, like, kind of paving around in your bowl or whatever, trying to get it on. Or you're just going to, like, scoop up sauce and then it'll be on your spoon and I don't like eating the cheese by itself I like eating the cheese with the noodle mm. so I am you end up with sauce on your spoon you should have too much sauce to begin with yeah true very true. true probably just add more noodles but I also don't normally have more noodles because I eat like one box is one serving for me <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah kind of how it goes okay Hannah I feel like your team spoon I ah! need those vibes from you. Oh, I wasn't trying to get from any vibes. Dang it. I was trying to be like <laughs> poker face, but I'm guessing I'm really bad at that. Um, okay. As always, my answer is like dependent on a million different factors. So I can never just say like one way or the other. I have to agree with both of what you guys said. So I definitely think I'm fork like 87% of the time. But <laughs> um, I often don't get like box mac and cheese. And I'm definitely not, like, a bougie, like, fancy kind of person. So it's not for that reason that I usually have, like, the homemade stuff. I just like it better. And I usually just, like, will have that more so than, like, boxed. And I feel like if you do, like, a penne noodle or, like, um, anything like that, you definitely need a fork for that. So I definitely agree with that. But if I did do, like, the shapes or, like, maybe, like, even, like, the little tiny shells, 
I would probably use a spoon for that, to be honest. But, like, if I only had a fork, I use a fork. But, like, I might choose a spoon no, if this I had is to, like, choose one. A life or death situation. You have to. You can only use one utensil for the rest of your life. Okay. Oh, well, that's a totally cheese. different. Oh, okay. For just mac and cheese. I was like, just for mac and cheese. That would be a really that good question. That could be another question. In the future. Yeah. Which utensil would you choose? Okay. So, final answer. 87% of the time, it's a fork. But it could also be a spoon. <laughs> well... <laughs> Depends on the noodle for me. Okay, I guess that's acceptable. I think Team Fork won, though. <laughs> yeah, Team Fork definitely won. Fork definitely won. Fork definitely won. That's the final answer. Yes. Cool. So that kind of wraps up the end of this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for Emily for joining us. And we hope to hear from you guys next time <laughs> yeah hear from me next time yeah. <laughs> just do what you guys do week to week you know the drill by now yeah this is episode yeah. like what are we in 20s yet i don't even know yeah i don't probably Who you knows? guys know the drill <laughs> cool all righty everyone bye we'll see you next time bye Thank you so much for tuning in on this episode of the Upbeat Dietitians with your hosts, Emily Krause and Hannah Thompson. We appreciate you all so much for continuing to support us. In order to support us and sustain the success of this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. If you'd like to provide us feedback for future episodes and guest stars, follow us on Instagram at the Upbeat Dietitians. Lastly, you can show us support by providing a monthly donation using the link at the end of our bio. Once again, thank you so much for listening today and stay tuned next Wednesday for a new episode. Until then, we hope you have a wonderful rest of your week.